0: Be reading from First Corinthians, one. Actually, five, one through thirteen. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Lord, thank you that we can see today your holiness and the holiness you require of your people, Lord, uh, the accountability we have one to another and to you, Lord, ultimately, um, to protect the purity of the body, Lord. Help us to desire and love the purity of the body for the sake also of our brothers and sisters here, Lord, um, that we would love their holiness, Lord, as much as you love ours, Lord, and Lord, that you would glorify yourself today in what is preached in your name, I pray
1: amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Our passage this morning is a sort of a painful one, uh, but in view of the of the quicksand of constantly shifting moral standards that surrounds us on all sides, uh, this passage is exceedingly relevant uh, to, to the church of Jesus Christ today. This passage is about how God commands His church to deal with willful and persistent sins within the household of God. And the stage upon which the rebukes and exhortations in this passage play out is the local church. The things that Paul says here make no sense if you take them out of the realm of of the local body of believers. Um, some of us may not like God's answer when it comes to how the church is commanded to deal with high-handed sin committed by an individual Christian. But we we must not ignore God's command the way the Corinthians were ignoring that command in Paul's day. Ignoring sin in God's household is sin, and God calls it the sin of arrogance in this passage. Sometime before Paul wrote this letter, he learned of a grievous sin that was being committed by a member of the the church in the city of Corinth. A man was having sexual relations with his stepmother, And it had been going on for some time. Paul was, when he wrote this, he was probably about 350 miles east of Corinth in the city of Ephesus. And his internet connection was really, really bad. So communication between those two cities had to be moved by hand over land or sea. Not only had uh, Paul been told of this situation, so it had time to, the news of it had time to get to him, But now the letter from Paul has had time to get back to the Corinthians and the the assumption is that the sin is still going on. God had already spoken very clearly to reveal His assessment of the sin of incest, including this specific sin of incest. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 23... And Deuteronomy 27 all speak specifically of of God's prohibition that a man would would have sexual relations with a step with his stepmother. Uh, but it was not only the people of the one true God who had a problem with this particular behavior. <laughs> Paul points out that uh, that this offended even the pagans in the Roman Empire. In verse 1, Paul says this constituted immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. And that's saying a lot, because guys, the Roman Empire was not a particularly moral place to live. Uh, nearly every commentary that I consulted on this passage gave specific citations from from secular literature in in this era in Rome that considered that declared that this this behavior was unacceptable it was immoral and the fact that paul does not say anything further about the woman involved in this sin indicates as far as i can tell that the man's stepmother was not a believer she was not part of the household of god we'll find out later how that factors in here but but the man was And that meant that the church was directly responsible to deal with this sin. Among the Old Testament passages that speak of this sin, Deuteronomy 27 is especially pertinent to our passage this morning. That chapter presents a series of blessings and curses that God commanded the Levitical priests to publicly declare right after the Israelites had come into the land of promise after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Immediately after the priests declared each curse, the people were to reply in affirmation. As I read Deuteronomy 27, verse 20, listen for what immediately follows God's condemnation of the specific sin that's being addressed here in 1 Corinthians 5. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. The people's Amen declared their agreement with Yahweh that the sin was an abomination. And that the curse that it would surely bring down from God's hand would be fully deserved. But it went further than that. That Amen also signified that the people were willing to act as God's instrument for the dispensing of that curse. They were agreeing to be agents of God as a congregation, not as individuals. The sins of the Canaanites that passages like these forbade were to be dealt with by the entire congregation of the Israelites. When someone was caught in adultery or incest, or homosexual relations, or even in the sin of cursing one's parents, that person was to be taken outside the camp of Israel by the entire congregation, and everyone was to cast a stone to take that person's life. God made the sin of one individual in the community of His people the business of the entire community of His people. Now, that's not a very popular concept today, is it? While God most assuredly does not command the New Testament church to stone sinners to death, as he commanded the Israelites to do under the law of Moses for certain sins, he just as assuredly does command the church not to turn a blind eye to such grievous sins. In fact, he commands the church to deal with, with sins like this very decisively. And that just does not set well with a culture like ours that says that we are to have nothing at all to say about anything that goes on behind closed doors between any combination of consenting adults, right? The question for us is, <laughs> are we going to submit to the requirement of men Or are we going to submit to the requirement of God? It's important to note that here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's attention, Paul's focus is not fixed mostly on the sin of incest committed by this one rebellious man, as we might think it should be. The focus of Paul's attention is, in effect, on the absence of the amen on the part of the church of Jesus Christ. The amen that God commanded of the whole community of God's people back in, way back in Deuteronomy 27. Paul will focus on sexual sin, sexual immorality in the next chapter, chapter 6. But in this chapter, his attention and his exhortation are directed toward the church's grievous failure to agree with God about the heinousness of this defiling sin that was going on within the household of God and on their equally grievous failure to fulfill their assignment as God's agents responsible to deal with this sin. Paul says to the Corinthian saints in verse 2, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Just as Paul does here, James, writing to another group of Christians, directly connects those Christians' failure to rightly grieve over sin in the community of God's people with the sin of pride, of arrogance. In James 4, verses 8 through 10, James says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And then listen to verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. The absence of godly misery over sin was directly connected with the absence of humility before God. It's amazing how consistent that is. In the Bible, when God declares a behavior to be sin, especially when it's a sin that under the law of Moses was deemed worthy of execution, but we conclude that it's either not bad enough to deal with, or that it doesn't demand anything of us because we're not the ones who committed it, what we're actually saying is that God is wrong and we're right. And you know what God calls that? Arrogance. And what we're telling both the world and the people of God in that kind of eventuality is that evil isn't really evil. And God directly addressed that catastrophic failure back in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And beloved, notice what God says in the very next verse. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There's the arrogance again, right? Directly connected with calling evil good and good evil. That's what Paul is getting at right here in 1 Corinthians 5. When we assess sin differently than God does, or when we respond to sin differently than God has commanded us to respond to it, we are engaging in the high-handed sin of arrogance against God. We are exalting our word over His word. That's happening a lot in the church these days, beloved. The lines are being redrawn to conform with the expectation of a godless culture so that in the mind, according to the preaching of some, so that the Gospel will continue to be palatable, tasteful to the world. The Gospel has never been acceptable to the world. The Gospel will only be received by those whose hearts God has pierced. Jesus said, they, they will hate you because they hated me." And the day will come," he said in John, the beginning of John 16, "When they will put you to death and think they're doing God a favor, we cannot expect that we're going to somehow tailor things by adjusting the boundaries that God has set so that people will accept the gospel. It's utter nonsense. That sin on the part of God's church is a bigger deal in the eyes of God than the sin of the individual. And I believe that's why the exhortation in chapter 5 comes before the exhortations in chapter 6 about individual immorality. Beloved, the goal of God's gracious work of sanctification in the lives of His children is not accomplished when an individual Christian is made holy. It is accomplished when His church is made holy. Neither of those works of God will be completed until our glorification day, but God intends for us to be zealous for our own holiness and for the holiness of his church every day of our lives on this earth. There's so many Christians who, who paint the Christian life as a matter of personal holiness when God keeps talking about the holiness of his church. That's why personal holiness matters so much. We can boast of our love and tolerance until the cows come home, but God knows the truth. It is not love that makes us tolerate sin. It's arrogance. And please hear this next part, beloved. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a refuge for sinners who desire holiness. Even as they struggled day by day for practical holiness, just like you and I do. In Matthew 9, when the Pharisees said to the disciples of Jesus, why does your teacher eat with the tax gatherers and sinners? Jesus didn't wait for his disciples to answer them. (laughs) He said to those self-righteous Pharisees, it is not those who were healthy who need a physician, but those who were sick. But go and learn what this means. And by the way, when the Lord of glory says go and learn what this means, we're supposed to pay attention. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. On behalf of Christ, we must go where sinners are, as Jesus did, and we must welcome sinners to come to us, as Jesus did. If lost men and women are never around more than one Christian at a time, they will have no opportunity to behold the love and unity that Jesus said in the high priestly prayer in John 17 would prove to them that He's the real deal. Read John 17, verses 20-23. to That's what Jesus says. This is how the world will know, Father, that You sent Me. By their unity. Together with us. The church is supposed to be a refuge for sinners who desire holiness, but the church will never be and must never be a refuge for sinners who despise holiness. In an excellent sermon on this passage by Kim Riddlebarger, you can find it on monergism.com, Brother Riddlebarger said that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a hospital for sinners. And I started thinking about that analogy if I hobble into a hospital emergency room with a self-inflicted gunshot wound in the leg, and and uh, I'm still losing blood at a dangerous rate, I'm going to expect an urgent and vigorous response. But what if the ER doctor takes a look at my leg and he says, oh, that's nothing to worry about. You're fine. Or, or what if instead he says, wow, that looks pretty serious. I'm glad that's your problem and not mine. And then he sends me on my way. Would that hospital be doing what it, what it exists to do? Of course not. If we say to a wayward Christian, that's your problem and not ours, we're doing the same thing. We must deal with high-handed sin and we must deal with it decisively when it occurs in the spiritual household of God. Not when it doesn't. We'll come to that in a minute. But in the original text of this passage, Paul begins verse 3 with the word, I. And then he presents the course of action that he has resolved to pursue in, in regard to dealing with this man's sin. But that course of action involves the whole church at Corinth. Not just Paul. Paul. Some translations uh, treat Paul as if he's the only active agent in delivering this sinner over to Satan. But I believe the English Standard Version gets the sense of this really well. So that's the one I'm using here. For though absent in the body, I, Paul, am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present... With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying that even though he cannot be physically in the midst of the Corinthian saints to deal with this man's sin, he is nonetheless present with them in spirit. And he resolves, acting, acting together with the leadership of the church in Corinth, to hand this rebellious man over to Satan quote, for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, some take the last part of verse 5 to mean that Paul assumed this man to be unsaved. I strongly disagree with that conclusion. At the end of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul sternly rebukes these same Corinthian saints for treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness. He says that because they are not judging the body rightly, some among them are weak and some are sick and a number sleep, meaning that some had had lost their physical lives by the hand of God. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 11.31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He's not saying that the Christians in Corinth were condemned and now they have to be uncondemned. He's saying that the discipline, the hand of God's discipline is part of how God protects us from, from any possibility of condemnation, having declared us not to be condemned. It's a guarantee. He keeps us for himself. The harsh discipline of the Lord toward His children, even if that discipline is to the point of physical death, is part of every believer's birthright. It's gracious. That discipline does not label us as condemned. It guarantees us that we are not condemned. What does it mean that the church in Corinth was to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, I don't believe we have to take that declaration any further than the second verse and last verse of this chapter take it. The command to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, I believe, simply means remove him from fellowship. And it views that removal from from the perspective of its effect. When we as the community of God's people break fellowship with a child of God, We are removing that person from the nurture and the shelter and the power of daily life in the body of Christ, and we are placing him back into the realm that God has now made completely foreign to that person's new nature. The realm of the ruler of this world, whose name is Satan. That's a wretched and threatening place for one who's true nature has been remade in holiness and righteousness of the truth. That's Ephesians 4, verse 24. As Paul says, the nature of every child of God has, has been remade. If the offender is indeed a child of God, as is assumed here, that's like setting him out on the Antarctic snow in a jogging suit with a key in his hand to the observation station that's just a few yards away and is filled with warmth and food and friends, and telling him that when he's ready, he can come the few yards back the other direction and use his key and come back in, but he cannot as long as he intends to keep doing things the way he's been doing them. It should be a no-brainer, right? The goal here is not the destruction of the wayward Christian. The goal is the restoration of the wayward Christian. That's why this is done, beloved. There's another passage in which Paul commands a local church to set someone aside. That passage is 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame and then listen to what he says next. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The goal of, pain, of the painful discipline that Paul is commanding in both of those passages is not the destruction of the wayward Christian. It is the restoration of the wayward Christian. This is a loving act, not an unloving act. Now, I realize that here in the buckle of the Bible belt, all a person has to do if he is disciplined by his church is drive a few minutes in any direction and he can find another church. A big problem with our independent churches is that that paradigm makes church discipline a whole lot less painful than God designed it to be. Out of love for God and For his wayward children, we as a church should make a concerted effort to communicate with other churches that are committed to doing what God commands here. But whether we're able to accomplish some level of cooperation between local churches in this matter or not, that doesn't change the assignment that he's given to this local body. God does not measure Our success in terms of its outcome, he measures our success in terms of our obedience. After stating his exhortation to the Corinthian saints to deliver this rebellious man over to Satan by removing him from fellowship, Paul then returns in verses 6 through 8 to his rebuke of these same saints. He starts in verse 6 by saying, your boasting is not good. When we read what comes next, it becomes clearer what the nature of their boasting actually was. Listen as I read verses 6 through 8. Start with the first couple. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. The clear implication here is that the Corinthians considered this instance of gross immorality to be no threat to the purity or godliness of anyone except the person who had committed the sin. Even as they ignored this grievous sin in their midst, they continued proudly patting themselves on the back as a church that was doing the church thing right. Here's where the, here's where the pride came in, guys. They were evidently convinced that what one member of the body of Christ at Corinth does behind closed doors has no impact on the purity of the body as a whole. And God says, that's fatally wrong. That's completely wrong. That's the world's assessment, isn't it? Whatever I do behind closed doors is of no concern to you. Go back and read the story of Achan. You know, who hid some of the treasure from the, from the city of Ai when they, when they occupied this, when the Jews came in and occupied the land and he hid it under his tent. The whole camp was punished. The whole community of Israel was punished until by God to drive the community to find out who had committed the sin. And then when he was smoked out, his whole family perished by the hand of God. His whole clan. We cannot assess this kind of thing by looking at what the world does. We have to listen to what God says. And did you catch the last part of that, that uh, first half of verse 7 there? I'm going to get to the second half in a moment. But it says, as you really are unleavened. See, Paul affirms the positional cleanness of these saints in the eyes of God, even as, even as he's rebuking them. For ignoring a sin. He does that a lot. That's how he started this book, and he he does that a lot. But that cleanness is entirely God's doing. All right, Paul then goes to the observance under the law of Moses that was known as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to provide a vivid picture of how the Corinthians were missing the mark. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's some interesting things going on here. The Passover was an annual remembrance, many of you know, for every generation of Israel of what happened in Egypt on the night of the tenth and final plague that God poured out on the land of Egypt because of Pharaoh's refusal to let his people go. That evening, somewhere right around 1440 B.C., at twilight, every Israelite family was commanded to slay an unblemished lamb and then to take blood from that lamb and smear it over the doorposts of their homes. At midnight, that same night, Yahweh himself, if you read Exodus 12, he didn't delegate this, Yahweh himself passed through all of Egypt and took the life of every firstborn among both men and beasts, except in the households whose entrances were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Pharaoh's own firstborn son died that night along with countless other firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt. The next morning, the Israelites left the land of Egypt with riches filling their hands that had been handed over to them willingly by the people of Egypt because of their fear of Israel's God. The annual observance that God commanded the Jews to practice every year to remember that miraculous judgment and miraculous deliverance is known as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God's instructions right there in Exodus 12, right along with the narrative of that event, God's instructions for that observance demand the purity of both the Lamb whose blood was smeared over the entrance to each home and of all bread consumed by the Israelites for seven days starting... On the evening that the lamb was slain. The purity of the lamb was reflected in the requirement that it be a lamb without defect. The purity of the bread was reflected in the requirement that it be unleavened. Leaven, as many of you know, is an agent that's used to make bread rise. Now, in our, in our times, we used packaged yeast to accomplish that. But the leaven that was used in ancient Israel was a sourdough culture that included wild yeast and bacteria. A small piece of fermented dough called a starter batch, which was taken from a previous successful batch of dough, was added to new flour to make a new batch. The addition of that small bit of fermented dough was all that was necessary to make the new batch, the bread from the new batch, rise very nicely. That process of taking a little bit of sourdough or leaven from an earlier batch and adding it to a new batch could be repeated over and over in an endless chain. I read on on puritanforum.com, I read this guy whose profession was as a sourdough bread baker, and he says he's still got a, he's still got a starter batch from Russia that's been going on for generations. But during the week-long observance of unleavened bread, No leaven of any kind was supposed to be found in the community of Israel. They were to get rid of it. And I think that's relevant to this passage. Paul says, put out the old leaven and start over. However, this worked out practically. The prohibition against the presence of any leaven in the camp of of Israel meant that this was not a command that could be obeyed without capturing the attention of every family in Israel, especially the attention of wives and mothers. The leaven that is necessary to make bread rise is itself an impurity. It's something other than the essential bread itself. And it takes very little of that impurity to do the trick. A little leaven very literally leavens the whole batch. The observance of the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread was a vivid, tangible, and even tasteable memorial or object lesson each year. It was graciously given by God to His covenant people, and it was indeed a picture. There are many, many pictures in the Old Testament of this kind. Like all of the ritual observances under the law of Moses, this was a symbol that pointed to a much bigger and much greater reality. And the substance to which this symbol pointed was Christ. Just like Paul declares right here in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Our true Passover lamb is Christ. And our true and pure bread is Christ. Read John 6. <laughs> because of the purity and sinless per- perfection of Christ our Passover, our sin is forgiven for all who trust in Him. And the wrath of God that we fully deserve has forever passed us over. We who trust in Jesus alone are the present incarnation of Christ on earth. We are His body. And he is our head. It is His purity that compels us together as one to preserve the purity of His body. We will not do that perfectly while we're all still doing battle daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we must do it diligently. and We must do it in utter and prayerful dependence on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You and I have no God-given ability to make our fellow believers live godly lives any more than we have the ability to make ourselves live godly lives. Sanctification is God's work. But God commands us both individually and corporately to be holy as He is holy. That was read from 1 Peter 1 this morning. We are to be holy as He is holy and to act together as one to guard the purity of the body of Christ. It's not a suggestion, beloved. (laughs) It's a command. When a local church refuses to practice church discipline, including when necessary, setting aside a member of their flock who refuses to repent when confronted with a high-handed sin, when a local church refuses to do that, God declares that whole local flock to be committing a high-handed sin against him. And that sin is the sin of arrogance. Certainly, it is the elders of the local church who bear the greatest accountability before God when, when a sin like this is ignored. And there's no question that Paul's rebuke in this passage was directed most pointedly at the elders of the church in Corinth. But we must not miss the point that that the whole body bears responsibility for church discipline. If the elders of this church deem it necessary at any point to break fellowship with a member of the flock who refuses to repent of a known sin after the process that Jesus laid out in Matthew 18, has been observed. But the other members of the body continue in interaction with that person. That short-circuits God's intention for church discipline, which is to turn that sinful brother's heart back to God so that he may be restored to fellowship with the body of Christ on God's terms. In his conclusion to this forceful exhortation in verses 9 through 13, Paul draws a very bold line between believers and unbelievers. Let me read those verses again. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now, I understand that a preacher is on shaky ground when he criticizes how a mainstream translation of the Bible handles a given verse, but I have to say that I have a gripe with a couple of translations on this on verse 11. One of them happens to be my favorite translation that I've memorized passages from since I was a kid, and that's the New American Standard. It renders the first part of verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. Now, let me ask you, When you hear someone described as a so-called anything, do you assume that that anything is legit or not legit? That's not what the words here mean in the original. Two chapters later, when Paul speaks of so-called gods who really aren't gods, he uses different words. He uses the verb to say in passive mode. So he's saying those who are said to be gods. But they're not gods. That's not what's going on here in chapter 5. The verb Paul uses here is the verb to name. And he's talking about the name and identity that is associated with the person that that, that, that verse is describing. The word and the form of the word that's used here in verse 11 is the same that is used in Luke 6.13 when Luke says that Jesus named his disciples as apostles. I also have a gripe with the NIV because it's, it renders this... Anyone who claims to be a brother. My problem with that is it takes a passive verb and makes it an active verb. This isn't about what what this guy claimed for himself. This is about what was claimed of him. I believe the ESV gets it right by sticking with a very literal translation. Anyone who bears the name of brother. By the way, I'll say, I've said this many times, I'll say it again. You should all have a copy of the 1901 American Standard Version English Translation. And the reason you should is because it is painfully literal. It's hard to read. It just gives you what it looks like the Greek is saying or the Hebrew. And if a word is used once in an extended passage, it'll be used. It'll be translated with the same word every time. I'm not saying read it every day. I'm saying have it there as a as a resource for study. That one says any man that is named a brother. The assumption here, I know I've got to wrap this up, the assumption here is not that the man who was sleeping with his stepmother is not an actual child of God. The assumption is that he is. As Bob said in our Wednesday discussion this week, the issue here is not whether such behavior really such behavior exists among real Christians. Christians are capable of every sin under the sun. The issue is whether such behaviors ever become known because we're really good at hiding stuff like this from each other. And then it's about what the church does regarding such sins when we, when they do become known. Here's the question that God is setting before us in this passage, beloved. How committed is the body of believers at Community Bible Chapel to the holiness of Christ's church? Not how committed are you and I to personal holiness, how committed are you and I to the holiness of Christ's church? That's the preeminent priority. You can't have the second without the first. A holy church is made up of holy Christians, but the goal is the second, not the first. That's why what I do, even behind closed doors, is your business. That's why willful sin that is unaddressed in my life is a matter that must concern you and vice versa. Our assignment as the household of God is not to expect unbelievers to act like believers. We must be in the world, we must go where lost sinners are, and we must love them with the love of Christ and boldly proclaim Christ as the one and only Savior of sinners. We don't get to insulate ourselves from lost sinners because their sin offends us or even because their sin entices us. We must be in the world but not of the world in order to seek and save the lost on Christ's behalf. Our mission toward the unredeemed is not to make them act as if they're redeemed. It is to introduce them to the only one who can give them the heart transplant that will make them desire to please God. Our task is not to make unbelievers act like believers, but, beloved, we must expect believers to act like believers. The goal of our sanctification is not to produce a handful of holy Christians. The goal is a holy church, mightily used by God to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. Dear Father, we desire to be as zealous for purity and holiness in your church as you are. We're certainly not there yet, Lord, so we look to the one who is continually at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We ask you to have your way with us, Father. We ask this for Jesus' sake and in his holy name. Amen.